On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's animals. A group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter, Ken Gregory, and Tom Corcoran, as we continue in the Pink Floyd catalog covering animals. Alright, gentlemen, we have reached the middle of the core sequence. We are about to go over the other side. Animals. The, the, the third out of the big four, or whatever we're calling them, doesn't really matter. Interesting, interesting album, this one. Not generally recognized on the same level as Dark Side or Wish You Were Here. Not as universally known as The Wall. Has kind of a different sound to it. This is, you know, the point, I think, where maybe Roger is starting to to flex his muscles a little bit lyrically. He, he has things to say, and he's realized he's got this platform, and he's going to, to use it. And I think perhaps maybe even more importantly, although it's a very, very small part of the story, it's on the corresponding tour to Animals, the In the Flesh tour, that sparks the incident. That is the genesis, apparently, for what comes next in The Wall. I'm speaking very dramatically tonight. I don't really know. You why. are. <laughs> you're, you're preparing. <laughs> you're getting ready for the Palaver Reed Shakespeare series coming up. <laughs> I cannot wait for that, Paul. We really need to do that. <laughs> so I, I texted you guys uh, over the weekend uh, that I listened to animals, and I don't remember what I texted, but it, was, it wasn't like – overwhelmingly positive and then of course yesterday i had a, a break uh for uh, at lunch and so i made myself a bowl of soup and i put on dogs and I, you know and i couldn't get it out of my head the rest of the day and then i listened to the album twice last night and just was like what am i talking about this album is amazing <laughs> and 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 so, like that—that that is the question that I have for you guys: Is all those things that you said, Joe? Is this album just underrated, or, or is it? Does it really sort of belong where it is? The sort of understated, not quite, doesn't quite get as much attention as the other three in this main sequence. Is it? Is that? Is that? It's is that? worthy of that or is it just completely underrated it's an interesting question i my gut feeling tells me that it's actually just underrated i i think it very much belongs on the same shelf so to speak with the other three i think it's less well known for probably a couple of different reasons and i mean when you talk about and you know it's it, it's a stupid distinction but this is what we do. This is perhaps, in terms of the way the songs are, are constructed and laid out, 
the most prog album of of the whole sequence. Yeah. Um, you know, because you have these three long form songs, and I I was making notes when I was listening to this. Dogs has like what five different guitar solos in it. I mean. <laughs> That that's you know that it's totally cool, but it's not but, it's not your but normal only song one, only one progression. <laughs> <laughs> so wow, the chords are actually really good. The I chords mean, are, are are fantastic in that song. But yeah, but so I mean it it and and I want to say they never released a single off of this record. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. and and it it does have everything about it does have. I mean, look at the, the I mean the cover is beautiful. But it's yeah. it's very it's dark. The sound is very dark, um, you know. And and it's when we talked about it, right? So we it, and and it's funny. We we also talked um, about that one interview that that Roger did, apparently in 1977, as it was credited, where he doesn't seem to have any freaking clue what what they were doing or what this album was really about. But if we put it in the context of what I will, you know, jokingly tongue in my cheek, refer to as the retconned version of Pink Floyd history, where, you know, dark side is sort of the opening of the door um, to this. I've got a message and I want to share it. And, and, you know, there are some heavy parts to dark side, but generally speaking, it's more, uplifting in a lot of ways it's it i think it's meant to be liberating and in recognizing these things that we all have in common that maybe um create anxiety or whatever and 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 you know looking for this universal truth and and this this empathy as as roger now describes it very cool wish you were here you know and we talked about this in the last episode it has that juxtaposition of you know welcome to the machine and, and have a cigar that that cold and cynical um you know way that that the, the 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 machinery uses people and everything else but it was bookended by the 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 beautiful and uplifting shine on you crazy diamond which is is you know in certain ways a celebration of of their friend um, and, and wish you were here is maybe a little bit more broader, but along the same line. So it, it has that sort of uplifting aspect to it. This one, not so much. Um, I, I know Pigs on the Wing, based on, on the research that I have done, you know, is purported to be a love song. Now, if it's a love song or if it's a positive song, whatever you want to say, it's got a decidedly Roger spin to it because it doesn't feel that way in any way shape or form and book ended on either side of this three song middle sequence it definitely doesn't feel that way and any positivity that is meant i think to be conveyed by pigs on a wing is completely just overshadowed by the sheer weight of everything that's in the middle so it in that respect i think it is i think they maybe accomplished what they were trying to do here it's just you know is it is that something that everyone is ready and able to consume all the time i don't know well i mean i, I think and you both mentioned it this album it doesn't have a single and i i first want to say it suffers because it didn't have a single but it doesn't suffer at all i mean and it was a it ended up being a multi-platinum album for the band and uh, a mega huge tour with it was 
in the uh, in the flesh tour was their biggest tour um, to to date. You know, it, it is remarkable. And again, there was sort of I, I had mentioned last week that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they were trying to pitch, um, you know, the sort of black cover of the album to the to the label. And I found myself saying that again with animals, like with not 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 the cover. But, you know, just saying, okay, after all the success we've had in, you know, with the prior albums and the record sales, the huge tours, here's our, here's our album, Animals. It has five songs, which, you know, the first and last song are really like a half a song sort of, you know, sandwiched together. But there's really, so really three, three songs in the middle. There's no hit, not that this is a, a hit band it ever was, but this is far from either... This is this is far from what even the last two albums were, as far as not having a single goes. I mean, there's definitely not a single in this one, um, with the with the length of the the songs. Animals didn't wind up being one of their biggest albums, but uh, it just goes to show you that these guys really. I'm, I'm just really impressed with the melodies that they come up with, that um, are continual, that are reoccurring. And it happens with, you know, the, the keyboards, it happens with the uh, guitar, and, you know, it happens with the vocals. But it just, they just take a song and they, and they really reinvent it. And they, they do it in a way that maybe other people have done it differently in the past, people that we've talked about. When you consider that these three main songs are so long, um, and you know none of them would even remotely be on the radio, and 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 when and you see what how successful this tour was, uh, again I'm just completely blown away. But I, I would say it's underrated. I remember having this conversation with people in high school because I for some some reason maybe it was because of the record store I worked in or whatnot. I it seemed like I was like the first one amongst you know a group of people that I you know, hung out with, I don't know if we talked about this in high school or not, you know, directly with animals, but it seemed like I was one of the first ones to sort of come across animals. And so I was always like talking people into to, to checking it out. I remember I um, had my brother listen to it and he fell in love with the album. But yeah, I mean, it just seems like a lot of Pink Floyd fans are not always accustomed to animals. And um, it, it, it seems like that's like the, even though I would, Joe and, and Paul, you got you both brought this up. I would put this in that category of these four albums. I would put it right up there because I think it's a great album. Somehow, it's sort of forgotten. I say that hesitantly because when you see the success of this tour, it's not wasn't really forgotten. But uh, well, well, yeah, I, but I, I I I wonder if that's a sign of the times, though, Tom. Right? Like, I mean. The uh, I want to say that Tormato was one of Yes's most successful tours, um, and I, I think we may have made the made the comparison back in that in that discussion that sometimes the album sells on the weight of the previous what the band's done previously. So after you know after uh, Dark Side and Wish You Were Here, ah, you know they could have put out anything and they probably still would have went and, and done arena tours. But to your point, Tom, that maybe that's why everyone was, you know, more interested in goofing off and 
fucking around at the shows instead of paying attention to the music because maybe animals was just a little bit too above them when when it came out i don't know i feel like this might be a good time for um context of uh animals but before that i just want to confirm joe animals did not i repeat did not make the top 1001 albums you must hear before you die right it, it did not that is correct okay because there were only 1,001 slots. So, that's, you know, we correct. can't have too many Pink Floyd albums in. Well, I mean, there are it, four. How many do you want? There, well, well, you know, I think, uh, was it Piper that edged, uh, edged out animals yes. for, the, for the last Pink yeah, Floyd slot? Okay. Yeah, that's sort of offensive, but yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I'd have Piper on there before maybe Saucer, but that's me. So it's funny that this is like the one album that, has nothing to do with Sid Barrett, and we sort of bring Sid Barrett into the house. <laughs> we always have to talk about Sid Barrett. It's always no, but you I brought mean, it up. You brought it up, Joe. I, I brought it up because Paul brought up the one thousand one albums to hear before you die. Um, you know, if 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 that hadn't come up, I would not have said his name in this at all. Although it did come up, I went back. I, I finally, I've, I I said, all right, this week I've got to I've got to get back to. To Nick Mason and and his book, it's not any better than the last time I picked it up. Um, <laughs> for, forced forced myself to read the very short section that involves um, animals. And honestly, for me, the more in interesting part about this was the small section where he talks about them buying and creating Britannia Row Studios. For me, oh, that yeah. that was that was more interesting. And, um, but he goes on to talk about, and, and it, it's kind of an interesting story, and, it, and it, it will tie in to my perhaps controversial theory that, that I had yesterday. But he talks about they, they purchased the building, they turned it into, uh, they, it was a three story block, as they called it. So the, the ground floor was going to be the studio, the second floor was sort of like a warehouse for all their, stage equipment that they had fantasies of renting out to other groups and it never happened. And the, the third floor was like an office, you know, type area. And apparently I, I, have, uh, I have some commentary there as well. Yeah. And, and apparently um, Roger Waters has a thing for billiards tables. And, and as Nick says, they tend to show up wherever he records. Uh, and but so that was that was interesting. Um, and, and the reason why I was fixated on Britannia Row is, again, if you've listened to the Lost Art of Conversation, Britannia Row comes into import um, as they were working on the original sort of song um, writing for the Division Bell, and, and so I was like, "Cool, what's this all about?" So. And, and, and the, the stuff that was recorded at Britannia Row, as I understand it, eventually became The Endless River. So if you look at it in terms of Pink Floyd albums, Animals, Parts of the Wall, um, and presumably The Endless River essentially were recorded at Britannia Row, which, um, you know, I, I, I don't know why I'm fixated on, on studios, but I am. So that was interesting to me. And then at the same time, he talks about, you know, the, the, the impact of the punk movement at this time and, and, 
and I believe it was Johnny Rotten with his I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt and things like that. And, and Nick is very gracious about the whole thing. And apparently, shortly at some point after the Animals album and tour, um, Nick was asked to produce a record by The Damned. And I guess they recorded that at Britannia Studios. So, you know, there there's a lot of sort of, you know, greater context going on around it. And Britannia Row, as he said, I guess they set it up as a, a presumably some sort of a four-way partnership. And eventually the other guys, you know, dropped out until it was just Nick. And, um, you know, and that's why they were able to use it when they started, you know, getting together for the Division Bell before they moved to David's boat. Now, why am I so fixated on the the punk movement in relation to this particular album? The reason I am, and I was sitting, you know, I've, I've listened to this album, you know, quite a lot over the last couple of weeks, as I do in preparation for this. And I had one of those moments yesterday. And I was like, my ears kind of perked up. And I said, I'm hearing something that I hadn't heard before. And I think the reason I hadn't heard it is I would have never expected to hear it on a Pink Floyd record. But we already, we kind of talked around the fact that this album sounds a little different. And I guess maybe I was thinking about, oh, well, maybe it's the effect of Britannia Row and everything else. A lot of this record, and I'm not going to say all of it, but a lot of it, and Dogs specifically, all 15 or so odd minutes, to me, sounds an awful like, and I know you guys are going to say that I'm desperate and I'm reaching and everything else, it sounds an awful lot like something off of the first two Tubes albums. And I'm not saying that the Tubes influenced Pink Floyd, but I'm suggesting that maybe the Tubes and Pink Floyd were influenced by perhaps the same sorts of things that were going on in the early 70s. I don't know, but after I sort of had that thought, I couldn't unhear it at all. A lot of the tones and, and the general ambiance and the way it's produced, to me, sounds very similar. And I just thought that was very interesting. And, and, and I say that because the, the Tubes always sort of, you know, they, they were a band that certainly when they began couldn't figure out what the hell they were. You know, were they, were they a punk band? Were they a prog band? Were they whatever else? Who knows? They were kind of everything. So I, I just, I thought it was interesting that all of those things kind of came together all at once. Incredibly interesting. You know, I would have never tied in anything with era, but I just oddly enough, and I was, I wanted to read this to you guys. It's a short little paragraph. Uh, it's part of the editor's notes for, for iTunes. So when I, I have an iTunes account and I type in animals, th this comes up and I read this and it sort of pieced a couple things together in actual relation to also some of the things you were talking about last week, Joe, when you were going on your Roger Waters rant a little bit on the, <laughs> on the darker side of Roger Waters. But, but this really uh, put a, put a couple pieces of the puzzle together. So the editor's note said, uh, says this, most of the British rock superstars of Pink Floyd's generation took little notice of the late 70s punk revolution. While the three extended epics that make up the bulk of animals couldn't sound less like the Sex Pistols, Roger Waters' venomous Orwellian lyrics viciously dismiss the 
the whole of modern British society as dogs, pigs, and sheep. That sense of seething contempt and anger makes animals a spiritual cousin of the punks. Though the hopeful two-part book and Pigs on the Wing offer a welcoming sense of compassion. Now, a lot of this sounds like some sort of BS we would read on, like, you know, Rolling Stone or something. But some of it, some of it makes sense. I mean, because I... Um, and it makes sense more lyrically than anything else. Because I, you know, was saying, okay, well, animals could be considered like a, a white-collar version of, you know, a, a, a punk rock band. Because yeah, I, I, say, I say animals... In, in particular, um, because of the topic, I mean, because of what uh, is being sung about, uh, the, um, the lyrics. So I, I found that very interesting, and that sort of tied into what you were just saying, Joe. So I don't know. I, I never saw it that way, but uh, my, my horizons are, were just broadened. It's really interesting, Tom, that you read that because, you know, you know when you think about prog bands of this era – Right, I mean, they're. I mean, the Pink Floyd is not. They're not. This album is not singing about hippie things or anything else. And they haven't really been. Um, they, you know, they've really, like, they haven't been psychedelic for a while, right? And and uh, that rage that Joe was going off on. This is the beginning of it. It, uh, you know, I never thought about it being tied to to punk. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. And, and I mean, I, I, maybe this is something we have to ask friend of the palaver, um, Ken, Ken Fuller, when we have him on for his lessons learned, right? Because punk really, if I understand correctly, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not at all learned in this particular lore, but but punk really arose out of of the UK in, in the late '70s, and presumably it came about. Because of you know whatever social conditions were existing there at the time, right? It just didn't manifest out of nowhere. So you know maybe there was maybe there was something, and this you know Roger reacted to it in a, a different way, but was still reacting to it, um, you know, given Roger's predilections. So, and I I believe that I I did read in uh, one of the articles that I read about this that. Whoever it was that wore the "I Hate Pink Floyd" uh, shirt, um, was it Johnny Rotten? I believe it was Johnny we Rotten. Yeah, I, I think he actually or Sid Vicious, you know, one or the other. Yeah, one of those two. They they openly said it was a joke, right? They yeah. they said they actually love Pink Floyd, um, and but they just wore it sort of as anti-establishment, if you will. Sort of, you know, I mean, what's more badass than being anti-establishment against the band that? is currently anti-establishment, you know? Right. I mean, you know, from, from really which you were here on, you know, it's, it's either anti-establishment or, you know, here's why my life is terrible. You know, that, that's the extent of it. Well, the comfortably numb Lake book puts the, the comparison out there between members of the damned not having the money for tolls to show up to the studio and their producer, Nick Mason, showing up on a Ferrari. <laughs> so re regardless of the intention or the ethos behind the revolution or behind the criticism of English society, 
there was just some kind of a stark financial difference there. Yeah. And, mm. and I remember, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm usually not much enamored of the, the true punk movement. Um, the only part of it that I really, really like, and I like a lot, uh, is The Clash. And I read Joe Strummer's biography, which in a lot of ways is just a, a devastating tale to read. It's, it's fascinating, but it's, it's, it's kind of sad in, in a lot of ways. And, and he talks about some of this stuff. I mean, he was in, in his book, he re relates to this, this squatters culture that existed in, in, and, and I can't even begin to put my brain around it, but I guess there were entire neighborhoods of, of vacant houses and, you know, these, these people would just sort of let themselves into these houses. And, and Joe Strummer talks about there was, you know, there was one guy who could hotwire you into the power grid and, you know, you would just, mm. you'd leave your stuff there and, and you'd go and do whatever. And, you know, hopefully it was there when you came back. And I mean, it just, the whole, the whole manner of living was just, you know, totally off my comprehension radar. And, and mm. so, you know, but I think this is, this is this is part of it. I mean, compare that to the beginning stories of of Pink Floyd. You know, um, right? You know, it's it's just it's vastly different from the experience that you know that that Roger and and Nick and and Richard had, uh, you know, in architecture school or or whatever the case may be. So this is this is nineteen seventy seven. Ken, did anything else of import? happened in the Prague world in 1977? Oh, yes. Before I proceed, uh, you mentioned uh, Britannia Row. I did. Yes. The ironies abound at Britannia Road. Uh, they intended to sell lots of extensive, uh, expensive studio time, which to some degree they did, but they completely failed in the rental business as they had some policy that they could purchase nothing new. So... <laughs> Unless your gig required the exact same rig as Pink Floyd, right. you had no reason to go to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that may be a flawed business model. I'm just saying. <laughs> like how many people just so happen to need that exact same equipment? Wish You Were Here was September 1975. We already spoke about Carrie Sovstael, Caress of Steel, uh, coming out on the very same day. Followed by all sorts of fantastic uh, Prague albums, Electric Light Orchestra, Face the Music, Kansas Mask, Procol Harem, Procol's Ninth, Frank Zappa and the Mothers, Bongo Fury. Let's see here. Steve Hackett, Voyage of the Acolyte. Would you believe that uh, that is almost a Genesis album, and it contains <coughs> it contains Phil and Rutherford, and uh, even a little bit of a uh, Percy Jones on there. It's fantastic. November nineteen seventy five, Chris Squire, Fish Out of Water. Nice. November November nineteen seventy five, Queen, A Night at the Opera. We're also in November 19th. I love it. We yes, are. Yes, We're yes. all ready for Shakespeare. <laughs> I have to do dramatic readings in preparation for this podcast. I mean, 
I already have the stupid pet tricks. I have to get the history ready. <laughs> I have to set up my guitar. And meanwhile, I'm doing Shakespeare. I, I, we do it all, you realize. So now... <laughs> Maybe we do need a Patreon. We're worth it. Yes, super <laughs> tramp. Crisis. What crisis? Um, oh, yeah, 1975 is also Ambrosia, self-titled. That, that earns a little uh, prog spot there. In 1976, do you guys remember little kids wearing three-cornered hats? I sure do. There, there are pictures to prove it. 1976, the bicentennial year. Oh, I had one boy. of those hats. Yep, we all did. Um Newly formed bands in 1976, Brand X, Brand X and yes. the Alan Parsons Project. I've heard of that guy. Gee, I wish that Dark Side album would have actually paid me some real money, but I'll have to cash in on the success later on. <laughs> <laughs> February 1976, Genesis, a trick of the tale. Mm. <clears throat> what rush... Concept album came out in April 1976. Would that be 2112? Yes, sir. Then we got a lot of good General Giant, Jethro Tull, Alan Parsons Project, Brandex, Soft Machine, John Anderson. That's right. Elias is on Hillo. Yes, July 1976. Woohoo! <laughs> yep. Man for Man, ELO. Zappa Zootalores. Steve Howe Beginnings, October 1976. Which ELO album um, was in 76, Ken? I'm sorry. What's that? Which ELO album was in 76? A New World Record. Okay. Because Out of the Blue comes out in 77. Hmm. So, Joe, in October 1976, which Kansas powerhouse came out? Uh, which came first? Is that Point of No Return? Or Left Overture. Left Overture. <clears throat> I can never remember which, which order those two came out in. Left Overture is phenomenal. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. And it has um, it has awesome artwork. The cover on yes. Left Overture is just off the charts good. Mm. Okay. Anybody want to take a stab at the Queen album in December? A Day at the Races? Yes, sir. Ding, ding, I'm, ding, follow ding. I'm following along yeah. online, so I'm, che I'm cheating. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And another beautiful Genesis album with a shitty cover, Wind and Wuthering, right before the end of the year, right there. Oh, I like the cover. Okay, now, finally, January 1977, Pink Floyd, Animals. So we only go up to the release date, right? We can't talk about other exciting things that came out in 77. I, I think we should because it's I think it really paints the contextual picture of, of what this album of darkness, uh, minimalism and rage is compared to. Well, do it, Paul. I, I've got I've got two I want to point out myself. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. So as I already <laughs> mentioned, ELO's Out of the Blue came out in 1977. Mm -hmm. And... The first Peter Gabriel album came out in 1977. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, wow. So we have Peter Gabriel with Robert Fripp, which is, you know, that's not a bad combo. Exactly a month after Animals. Or no, close to a month after Animals. Yeah, and I, I was just, I just wanted to call out, like, Grand Illusion. Oh, yes. Came out 
going for the one came out uh point of no return did end up coming out and news of the world those were the ones that that sort of wow that's you a know, huge year I, I mean these couple of years right 75 through 77 are just ridiculous and and like those were albums all those albums i mentioned were ones that you know were circulating <laughs> around my household by my older sisters while i was um discovering music as a seven-year-old so so it it's um it, it i think those records are stark comparison you know contrasts to the the the, the mood of, of animals i think that that's a really good point it, it it really is and and by the way tom kudos for that dennis de young video that you pointed us to over the well, weekend dude that was it was apropos, I think, is is the word I'm looking for. Uh, where he that says, "What's a mother a to do?" You really impressed me, and he was. Uh, I mean, was it was anyone shocked at how well he sang? What uh, based on the, just kind of the way he looks? Yeah, like, no. Yeah, I mean, he really nailed that song. I mean, yeah, and yeah. he did a great piano. Yeah, accompaniment to it too. I mean, he wasn't just like you know trying to get by on the piano. I mean, he he really had a. He really had some chops. He was he was slaying. So, so I don't kudos. think the dude ever taken a day off in all these years. And I'm sorry, which sticks album were we talking about? Well, Grand Illusion came out Grand in '77. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know when Pieces of Eight came out, but there's the uh, the Hypnosis crossover there. So, oh, there you go. I think Pieces of Eight was after that. Okay. Well, while we're celebrating all the influences, clearly what starts to lack in the Pink Floyd catalog at this period. Um, the Comfortably Numb book attributes modern composers, particularly Stockhausen, as influencing Richard Wright. And we are losing mm. the keyboards. We are losing the acoustic keyboards. We're losing the piano. And we are losing his connection with 20th century composers. I have a, qu a question because I don't know. And you guys have definitely been boning up on the lore a little bit. You know, during this period when Richard Wright was becoming estranged from Waters and kind of being removed from the band, did he do any? Did he do anything else? Did he do anything solo? Did he do any other projects? I want to say he threw he, great parties. I want to say he did. I, I was looking up Snowy White mm. based on some of our conversations, and I want to say that that. Snowy White showed up on a Richard Wright solo album in, I want to say, 78. Okay. okay, that would make sense, right? Yeah. And I also want to say that Gilmore's first solo album also came out in 78. The book says Richard and his wife threw great parties. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. Is there some implication I, there that we... Uh, uh, you know, now, I, we you are can, you 1977, can, so we, you know we're approaching peak marijuana usage in North America. I don't know if that was the same in in the UK. If that's the implication, if we have an, a, an eyes wide shut situation going on here, what what are we talking about, Ken? I don't know. You can just imagine, you know, <laughs> paraphrasing Gilmore. It's a sometimes a little bit, not that much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was stunned by that Waters interview, you know, from 77, because you're used to, I'm used to seeing him, you know, in later years where, and, and it, 
I feel like a jackass, but what the hell, where it just seems like he's had time to practice his delivery and, and, and he's constructed whatever, whatever story he's going to tell. And to hear him in 77, either he, either he had no clue or he was just stoned out of his mind and didn't know where he was. Um, it, it, it was just, you know, even, even the whole thing about, you know, the way he described, you know, why they use Battersea Power, Power Station, you know, it just, it, it wasn't yeah. the compelling sort of narrative that you have come to expect from Roger Waters with regards to all of this. And, and even, you know, you would think with the lyrics on this, this record, because there are some great lyrics here, you know, some that are odd, some that are spectacular, but you know, I, I think it's it's very well done. I mean, Roger has really come uh, really a, a long way in, in his lyrics, and, and for him to be so not communicative in that interview was stunning to me. I, I personally, yeah, I'm going. I'm going with. You know, he was a little a little bit under the influence at the time. Because, you know, to your point, like, he talks about the power station, and he's basically like, yeah, I pass it every day at work. I I thought, yeah, why not? Let's let's take a picture of that. Oh, you know, but like, may I tell the, the Battersea power station story very quickly? We would be yeah. remiss if we did not tell the Battersea power station story. Uh, Storm Thurgerson actually required three days to do this. The sky is a separate day from the the power station itself. The pig was not fully inflated on the first day, so they had to work all that out and get the thing fully inflated. But I think for the first day, they hired a marksman to shoot down the pig if anything bad happened. Nothing bad happened. So they didn't bring the marksman to the second day and the pig got away and this whole crazy thing happened. They were in the news, free publicity. Yay. They send their roadies out to retrieve the effing pig in a field somewhere. I think that's this picture. Uh, that picture? Yeah. What, it's black and white. I can't tell what it oh, is. Oh, really? So it, it, here, it looks like it's it's it's... Alfie, algae, algae, I think is his name. Yeah. It, it looks algae. like algae has landed in a field, but first his snout is sticking up in the air. Oh, wonderful. I, okay. I, I think that's what it is. I don't know. There, there's no indication that it's anywhere close to Battersea Power Station. <laughs> the the punchline, as I know the story, is the third day they got the thing up in the air, but they had two marksmen just in case the thing got away. Well, I, you know, and and it's interesting, right? Because when you look at, at the gatefold on the LP, or in this case, the foldout, you know, they're, and, and hypnosis does this, right? They, they don't just do the cover of the album. They do all of the artwork sort of in the album. So this is, and, and there's this great, you know, this, this great story can about the pig and everything else. And, how exactly they thought a, a, a single bullet was going to bring down this pig is beyond me. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's exactly how the whole thing works, but, you know, great, wonderful. So they, they go to all these great lengths to get, you know, the they have this three-day shoot and, 
you know, they take all these pictures and, I mean, you've got a painting of the scene on the cover, which could have been done without three days of flying pigs running around the English countryside, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I mean, they, they do have, you know, and, and there's, and again, you can't see it, but there there is a great picture here of this very cloudy day and, and, and algae is actually in between the oh, stacks. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I mean, there are some, some very sort of moving pictures with regards to that. And then here's, uh, here's another one of him in the thing. Yeah. But I mean, the, the actual cover itself didn't need them to do that. And yeah. it's just, it's, I, I think it, you know, again, if you've listened to the Lost Art of Conversation and, and as Poe describes that and, and some of these other <laughs> interviews of this period where Storm talks a lot about this, I mean, these guys, it, it's, they're fabulously eccentric, I think is the way that I would describe them and, and yeah. the way that they, they just go above and beyond to do these things that in the strictest sense don't need to be done, but they add something to the whole mystique. And, and I think the package that comes out of that is very moving. Yeah. I mean, perhaps they got all the elements that they needed in all of those three days of shooting and, and they put all of the great, great moments together in a, uh, in a painting. Yeah, it's just it's very very cool. I, I love it. So Ken, thank you for for uh, for sharing the Battersea Power Station story. I, I, I really think it was a it, it was a marksman, Joe. So I think one very precisely placed shot could have brought down the pig in a, in a heap. But I'm I'm thinking of <laughs> I'm just the thinking Luke Skywalker of, the, of Great Britain. Perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the volume of of gas in the pig. <laughs> and the size of a hole that's going to be made by a bullet. I mean, you know, it just, it, it seems dubious to me. Listen, it ended up at the, in a field, you know, miles away. And it was, uh, you know, stopped air traffic for a little while. So best laid plans. Awesome. Great, great stuff. All right. Okay. So there it we, is. <laughs> I think, I think we oh, talked wait, about the particulars. <laughs> oh yeah. Particulars. That's right. I get so I'm so excited by this, you know. It's it's funny. <laughs> so the particulars of the album, um, if I can get to it, as we have mentioned, Animals was released on in January of 1977. Um, it was produced by Pink Floyd and released on Harvest and Columbia. The band lineup includes David Gilmour. Um, Roger Waters, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright on all of the normal things that they usually do. But on this one, we have credited one Snowy White. Now, Snowy White did the guitar solo on Pigs on the Wing before it was chopped into two. And, you know, the, the funny lore here is that intact version of Pigs on a Wing with Snowy's guitar solo is or was available on the eight track cassette version mm. of animals. Mm. And it was wow. not available anywhere else. Um, I never had an eight track. I knew a guy who had an eight track. I used to go over and we'd hang out in his room when I was like 12 or 13 years old and listen to Beatles albums on eight track, which was very, very cool. And I was very confused by how he would hit a button and the song would change. And I'm like, what, how did that happen? It was just- Didn't didn't songs used to change in the middle of, uh, or the tracks change in the middle of the song sometimes? If on you, the eight track, if you switch the tracks you were listening to, yeah, yeah, because they didn't that, that obviously was... didn't line up. 
Who so, thought that was a good idea? Eight tracks. So the the track listing is Pigs on, on the Wing, part one, dogs, pigs, three different ones, sheep, and then Pigs on the Wing, part two. Animals is the 10th studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released on 23 January 1977 through Harvest and Columbia Records. It was recorded at the band's Britannia Row Studios in London throughout 1976 and was produced by the band. The album continues the long-form compositions that made up their previous works, including Wish You Were Here, 1975. The album received positive reviews from critics and was commercially successful, reaching number two in the UK and number three in the USA. This is a reputation performance, I think. Animals mm. is both a progressive rock album and a concept album, focusing on the social-political conditions of the late 1970s Britain, and was a change from the style of their earlier work. Tension within the band during production later culminated in keyboardist Richard Wright leaving. The album's cover shows an inflatable pig floating between two chimneys of the Battersea Power Station, conceived by the band's bassist and lead songwriter Roger Waters, and was designed by longtime collaborator Storm Thurgeson. The band released no singles from the record, but promoted it through the In the Flesh tour. Waters' agitation with the crowd during this tour inspired their next record, The Wall. As Gilmore said in regards to the dark side days, the crowd was ready to boogie. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a good way. Oh. So, you know, Joe, one of the things that you, you didn't uh, mention from the wikis was the was the idea that that the concept was loosely based on George Orwell's Animal Farm. That's true. Particularly the the, the track uh, Sheep, um, and you you know you know I I basically I've been called out you know in on the interwebs for my lack of lore. But once again, you know, here I am innocently, you know, flipping through the wikis on uh, this weekend. And uh, I'm like, oh, look at that. This was based on the animal farm. I never put that together before. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is, like the last person in progressive rock to get the news, to get the memo right here. Has anyone here read all of Animal Farm? Uh, no, but I did read the synopsis of it over the weekend on the wikis. I have I, I have the audiobook and I've enjoyed it quite quite a lot, although I prefer 1984. Hmm. Um, Fair but, enough. But yeah, it's it's a uh, you know, I, I, with all due respect, Paul, I always thought that was a little bit of an obvious connection, but yeah, as I think I <laughs> I would have as well. In in my defense, in my defense, I was in like the average reading class all through uh, my uh, my life in high school, and Animal Farm never crossed the desk of uh, that class. So yeah, I never read uh, Animal Farm in school. It was only uh, as an adult that I got the audiobook because I'm like, and thanks, there, there, there's a lot of literature that I've I've I, I won't say <laughs> I've read, but I've listened to. I, some people consider that the same thing. So like, I you know I as, as an adult I did. Um, Animal Farm in 1984. I did Anna Karenina. I did Test the D'Urbervilles. And, um, oh, there was another one. And all of those books are mm. bleak and desolate, man. They're just, mm. they're devastatingly sad. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I'm, now, I'm in, now I'm interested in reading Animal Farm. 
because uh, you know, I it's it's interesting to me. It's it's pretty short. I, I I'm I'm sure it would be it would be interesting to us today. I, but yeah, I mean, obviously, a 16 year old, it's like eh, okay, whatever. Yeah, I, I mean, that what's what I, I mean, like so the fact that the the farm animals take over the farm, but then the the lead uh, pig enslaves them, you know, and makes their lives just as bad as they were before. Um, and then the parallels that Orwell was drawing to communism, which I think is phenomenal for the the time that he wrote it. But this is all just l- learning about on the wikis. But um, it's it's cool. It's cool to have that context listening t- listening to uh, to sheep. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, pigs on the wing. I'm go- I'm just going to ask the question prior to preparing for the palaver in just the normal listening to animals throughout our lives, has anyone ever given two thoughts about pigs on the wing? Or is yeah. it just like, here's here's 90 seconds before I get into dogs? I, I have. Okay. So I, I don't know if you guys had this experience, but, you know, you know, I got into animals after pretty much every other Pink Floyd album that I got into early on in high school. So, you know, I heard snippets of The Wall, and I explained this before, but then I really started to get into the wall. And one of the one of the first tracks, you know, when I when I dubbed the wall off of someone and I had this hit, one of the one of the tunes that I played over and over was Mother. And it was, you know, really my favorite song for quite a long time on the wall. And and um and so uh a while later, uh, you know, I'm there listening to animals and it starts and I'm like, I'm like looking around the room going like thinking, guys, do you, do you, do you, they're playing mother. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Um, so I, I, you know, I kind of dismissed it always because of that. And now I sort of, you know, there's, to me, there's, a, there is, we sort of touched upon it when we talked about welcome to the machine. To me, I can't I can't escape because of the way that I learned about Pink Floyd. I can't escape thinking that animals is, you know, the practice for the masterpiece. Um, And I pigs on the wing is just kind of an example of that to me. I would like to submit that um, credits are divided by author. And uh, every time Roger slices one of his songs in half, he's taking one credit and turning it into two credits. (laughs) <laughs> it seems very fitting for this album, actually, when you think about it. <laughs> but, but you know, I think this, you know, the, and, and that's obviously the, the cynical view of this, right? I mean, you could make the argument, and in the book, Nick makes the argument that Roger split Pigs on the Wing into two pieces to provide sort of the symmetric structure to the album, which... Is, seems to be a very valid argument and perhaps is more in line with what Roger professes as his fundamental philosophy on life. There's perhaps something, he had symmetrical pockets to pocket the, his pound notes. There, there, there is something that rings true about the more cynical view, which I think speaks to some of the issues that I have with Roger that I spoke about a little bit on my last episode. And, and, you know, so I really tried to pay attention to to this song and and, you know, read more into it. And uh, all I all I hear is a Roger Waters demo. 
is is what I've got. You know what's what's uh, what I will um, say in defense of this tune is that while I always just sort of discounted pigs pigs on the wing part one, I always had completely ignored pigs on the wing part two. <laughs> like I get, to, I get to the end of the sheep. I don't even. I'm just hitting hitting eject or whatever. I I don't need. So, but but. This go around listening to Pigs on the Wing and, you know, kind of as you said, Joe, like sort of tying it all up in, in sort of a happy ending and a hopeful ending in only the way that, you know, Roger Waters can do. Um, I, found a, I found a much greater charm in the overall bookends by having sort of the I don't. I wouldn't really call it hopeful. I don't. I, in fact, I don't think it's hopeful at all. I just think that. I mean, I just. Is, is it okay if I skip to the part, pigs on the wing part two? Sure, it's our podcast. I just, Go for it. I just like that. You know, he's like, so I don't feel all alone or the weight of the stone. Now that I found somewhere safe to bury my bone, like it. it it's such off the wall way of saying, like, you know all the shit that you go through in life, you know, it's, it's worthwhile because you end up, you know, with, you know, the person you love, family, whatever. Right. And that's, and that's kind of what it's all for. And, and no matter who you are, whether you're a pig, a dog or a sheep, you know, you have that, everybody has that same sort of a ba baseline, even though it can be different for everybody, and and I don't necessarily find it hopeful. I think I just find it truthful, and um and it to me it it gave some more charm to the to the bookends of this. So let me ask you the question: since you brought up uh, part two on this, the bury my bone line, do we think that's um, a euphemism or a metaphor? I I think it's both. Okay. That's the genius of it. In some ways, it's almost Peter Gabriel-esque in its upfrontness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which you don't normally get from Roger. The, the one note that I do have here that I found interesting as I contemplated Pigs on the Wing, and, and we can consider both sides of this, is he almost has this – and, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of any actual um, – mental condition, but he almost has this split personality in this micro and macro point of view that he he sort of vacillates in between. And there was a little bit of it, I think, maybe in Dark Side. I don't know that there was... I guess it, if you look at it in the broad strokes, there was there was some of it in, in Wish You Were Here as well, where the bookends were the micro point of view, the personal point of view, and the, the middle part of Wish You Were Here was the macro. Mm. So, um, and you've got the same thing here. So Pigs on the Wing is very much this personal um, personal perspective, whereas the middle part is is sort of the, the, the societal sort of damnation, if you will. And, and I think the one thing about the wall and and honestly, the the final cut is is the fact that th there are these quick shifts, and and it it sort of disrupts the narrative because I can't figure out why the hell I've shifted perspective sometime. But mm. but in here, I think that's that's what what pigs on the wing says to me. It, it sort of illustrates this micro macro thing that Roger seems to really like. 
Nice. I like it. So I need to know what the wing is because I never understood that part. Well, there's a flying pig over the power station, Ken. I mean, come on. It's obvious. <laughs> on the wing. So, so the pig goes up over a power station. That's right. He's like, this is cool. But I, I think I could fucking get I could actually be on a plane right now. I could just go and hop on that wing. Mucho, anything about pigs on the wing that uh, floats your canoe? Um, I really like both. And I, it's nice because you have a heavier album. And even if you don't put the whole thing together um, lyrically, just as, as a package, it feels nice. You start off light, you go into this whole heavy thing, you end light, and it's a beautiful melody. It, it's simple after you have these long progressive songs, and uh, I've always I've always liked it. It's interesting to hear Paul talk about the similarities between that and Mother. I never put that together, but um, I can see where that would be the, the beginning stages of, of of Mother as well. I guess to differentiate myself from Paul part two, because I almost need a little bit of a breath. And it's sort of just like winding down, like after a run, you want to walk a little bit and then mm. before you stop. And so it's it's nice to have that. And it's, it's a nice melody. And it, 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 it gives you that. It gives you that um, transition. Dogs. Apparently, parts of dogs predated Wish You Were Here and were performed um, as early as 1974 under a different name, which I cannot seem to put my finger on at the moment. Raving and drooling? I don't. I think Sheep was raving and drooling. I think it was the other one. Okay. Yeah. So, Joe, while while you're looking that up, just real quick, uh, am I? I think you and I are the only ones who have dogs at the moment. Do did your dogs? How did your dogs react when listening to this? Because mine freaked out. I was making <laughs> every time I'm in the kitchen and I play dogs. Uh, you know, of course, there's the sound of dogs in the background, and my dogs couldn't differentiate a CD from something outside. And if a dog barks outside. My dogs are, you know, do the whole dog thing, and they want to defend their their domain, and they freaked out. So I was wondering today why my dogs were freaking out, and I realized that I was I was I had dogs on full blast and was uh, and was rocking out to it. So that's do funny. Any of your dogs have that same? No, thing? my dogs have not. Uh, now, it, I do recall that Buddy had that same reaction. But mm. the two dogs I have now do not uh, react in that form or fashion. So uh, dogs had been, uh, quoting Nick Mason here, um, dogs had been performed even before the Wish You Were Here album on the autumn 1974 tour of the UK as a song called Gotta Be Crazy, and elements of sheep had appeared on the same tour as Raving and Drooling. There's a lot going on in this, this song, right? I mean, it's, it's what, a 17-minute tour de force? It is, it, it, it's such a journey, with all due respect to our buddy Jay, for using, for using the, the word, but it really is. I mean, it, 
you feel like you have come some discernible distance by the time it's all said and done. And is this, in fact, the first use of the of the vocal switch? No, we've talked about this before, have we not? <laughs> they used the vocal switch on on um, Dark Side, but they they did it differently. I want to say this is the first time we've had the Gilmore morphing into Waters straight switch, and you know, again, sort of sort of indicating some change in fortune, um, as it were, or change in, in intent, often to sinister effect when when Roger sort of comes in at the end as whatever character he is at that point. I think I mentioned in the beginning portion of this, there's like, I want to say there's, there's five different solo sections. Um, there's at least four, if there's not five. Uh, my notes were kind of rambling as I was going through this. This is the song also, as I mentioned, that sounds to me a lot like um, The Tubes. And in fact, uh, you know, a couple of these, it, it's a lot of the solo sections that really do that for me. And a lot of the keyboard sounds, I think, um, help create that as well. I think the drums and the bass on this sound very cramped. But I, I do think that, that David's vocal delivery really does sell this uh, for me at least yeah you know, and, and I'll just kind of walk through maybe my notes here so it starts out the drums and the bass are cramped um, Gilmore's vocal delivery really sells this um, the second solo with the dual leads is very very cool you've got the dog barking breakdown into the third solo section um, then it gets into the best line, and I've got to find it here. Um, yes, sir. That is the best line. When he delivers that, right? Because he delivers the other line first. And when you lose control, you reap the harvest you have sown. When he gets to, and it's too late, the whole thing starts to swing a little bit. And that's where Rick Mason just freaking destroys. It, I, it's fucking awesome. And I, and I don't think I ever really appreciated it until this go-around, um, the, the change there. And maybe it's because I'm listening more deeply, you know, with, with my stereo and all that. But it's just because it, it has that big, the first, like, big vocal thing that kind of fades yeah. down. And then it picks up into that line. And it just starts to groove. The guitar is going. The it's just it's just awesome. The guitar is doing something different. Um, Mason really starts to swing it a little bit, and and the and the song just takes off from there. It, it really does, right? And so it it the basic vocal line is is similar, but the feel underneath it is yes. totally different. Exactly, which yes. is is very very cool. And 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 yeah yeah. Go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead, Paul. The you know as far as Gilmore selling the lyric right like the thing that's so i think so great about this whole section that he sings is he sort of I, I wish i could i could come up with the word that describes it he's sort of very um he, he sings it with just the right amount of arrogance and malice like he's not he's singing about very bad shit you know he's using the tomb you you know it's yeah. talking about and but he's he's not saying it as though it's something bad. He's saying it like very arrogant. Like this is yeah. what you'll do, and this is this is what it feels like. And and uh, 
And there's just something that is so real about it that amazes me because, you know, as far as I know, these guys were, you know, students and hardworking musicians and, and, you know, they somehow have captured life in the corporate world perfectly, and, and even though it's so stereotypical. And it, it's Gilmore's interpretation of Roger's lyrics, right? Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's, it's amazing that that works out really so well. They're, they're probably still arguing about the fact that um, they had a, a third party saying, have a cigar. Yeah. So they were like, okay, now this time we definitely better get this right ourselves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and from there we go into the ambient section with the dogs and, you know, mm. Richard Wright seems to love to make animal sounds on his keyboards. Cause I'm pretty sure the dogs here are not actual dogs. Um, I think. Yes. He's what? using the keyboard effect. Yeah. That I, I, like to call the love bites effect because yes. that, that's sort of <laughs> oh the last. Exactly. <laughs> we all had the same there thing. Jeff Leppard love bites, but I'm like, I'm saying to myself, these guys are going to kill me if I say that. And I, and I, I, I put it in italics because I was like, oh my God, these guys are going to give me shit for this. No. I, I'm so glad you said that because I think about love bites in this song. It's, it's you know, it, Jeff yes. Leppard definitely, uh, definitely pays homage to, <laughs> but, but i mean he, he did the same thing with the uh with the bird sounds on it was either more or obscured by clouds or both i mean you know he seems to like to do this yeah and what i thought about this is it's it's kind of spacey right and and it it sort of harkened me back to some of the old psychedelic breaks that they used to have in and saucer full of secrets but it's much more focused and palatable. I mean, I, I want to say this section goes on for a couple of minutes, but it's it's okay. You know, you're you're kind of just like you're you're flowing downstream and waiting to see where it comes out. And then when that acoustic comes back in, now what yeah. what is striking to me about this acoustic is the overall tone of this song gets a little brighter when that comes in. Everything else in everything else to this point, and we're what probably 10, 12 minutes into the song or whatever, and it's yep. been it's been kind of muddy and it's been kind of dark and it's got that same sort of brown tone that the cover has, and this acoustic comes in out of this spacey bit, and it's a little bit brighter, and you're going, oh, cool, that's great, and then suddenly you hear Roger singing, and you're and and everything from a sonic perspective brightens up. But we know mm. from here on out, when Roger is singing, things are not going to be bright. And so you get this. I, I was just sort of struck by this this sonic dissonance between the subject matter and, and this shift in tonality that just mm. sort of struck me. And then we get into our fourth guitar section. And the last note that I have here is that the, the lyric structure at the end, the sort of the list structure reminded me very forcibly of the the list structure in Eclipse, where yeah. he's just kind of going through a laundry list. And 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 there's um yeah, it's just it's it's interesting the way that he, he sort of builds that up. All right. For you love bites people, <laughs> uh, Peter Frampton released Do You Feel Like We Do in nineteen seventy six, which is nice. a uh, far more acrobatic and musical expression of the talk box 
Um, but I do very much appreciate what what's happening here with uh, Gilmore and Dogs. But he is certainly by no means not the first person to make popular the talk box. Do I want to say that Dan had a talk box? Didn't he make one at some I think point? he made one. Yeah. I don't know that he ever used it for anything. Yeah, I'm trying to think. But he had, he I, I remember he had that rubber tube on his mic stand. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Ken, we're talking about the little keyboard, like, vocoder sound in uh, in Love Bites. Um. Not so much. Oh, the, okay. All right. All right. So, so I'm, 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 I'm equating the talk box to the vocoder, but yeah, but it, it's, it's the same idea. I mean, but there's I mean, a, yeah, there, there, and there is an interesting, I don't know if it's a talk box or a wah wah in pigs, um, during the solo that really alters the guitar tone, um, to make it more sound more squealy. I was all interested in. I was always interested in what that sound was. All right, so let's get into chords of dogs. Let's yes. talk about chords of dogs, um, Ken. I marveled over the use of. Uh, in time, it seemed like an E minor nine to me, and um, this is a, a D minor nine. Uh, it, it's still well within the Floyd chordal vocabulary. Sounds like this. <laughs> It's beautiful, mm. isn't it, guys? Yes. So what you're hearing there is a minor chord, but then you're hearing a minor seven, and then you're hearing on top of that the nine. So the nine is really just like a suspended two. That's a D note, and that's an E note. They're very spacious. They're very wide spread out. Otherwise, it would be too close together if you actually had the D to the E immediately. So you have to put that E way up there to get the beauty of it all. And you start beating on that. Now, I'm going to throw out the theory that Nick Mason grooves by, by way of contrast, because you wouldn't need to groove it so badly if this initial rhythm wasn't so freaking mechanical. Okay, it's nice, it's beautiful, but damn, is that kind of artificially mechanical in a way. Mm. And I can't believe that Gilmore sings over it. I would be very curious to go through the bootlegs to see exactly what the balance is there and what exactly they're pulling off. Um, now, as for the turnaround, oh my God, that that's basically uh, and like an like an A so it's four to uh, a B flat seven, and then back into the which is really common. You know, a lot of Floyd stuff will use like if you're in D minor, and then you're going to come to it from uh, an A seven. Yeah in some way but this is like a really nice voicing of mm -hmm. that of that harmonic minor fifth kind of turnaround five to one turnaround so i really really appreciate this progression just in total and uh it may be done a bit too often seems like each verse is twice through it so you're hearing this progression 
in three verses, a total of six times. But luckily, they're kind of changing out what's going on underneath it. And Gilmore's articulation in the vocal is just pretty soulful, in my opinion. It, and I think the repetition in this case gives it that live live kind of feel. Like, it, it's not surprising to hear that they they were performing this song in one way, shape, or form for years, you know? Um, they, it just, it, everything breathes, nothing's rushed except for the drums, but nothing is, um, you know, they just let the song kind of take its course. I kind of, I, I kind of, I, I mean, I, I think you could be critical of it if you wanted to be, but I kind of like that, that it kind of lets the, the, the live feel come through and the breathe, the breadth of the song. Ken, do you think that they do this in an open, open style tuning? Uh, on the re- on the record, oh, it it could be, yeah. I'm I'm not married to the voicings I just gave you. They sound um, beautiful, but that's why I was asking if you if you thought right like, what you're just playing sounded gorgeous. It it always amazes me uh, through the entire Pink Floyd discography. It amazes me how simple some of the chord voicings really are. Mm. You know, unless unless I'm copying piano, but but usually. When trying to transcribe a Floyd tune, simpler is better. <laughs> yeah. Am I the I, I, actually? I'm not the only one because I know Joe. You had mentioned this. Um, and I'm hesitant to say this because I know last week, Ken. I know I gave you some grief about "Welcome to the Machine." The, uh, the, um, <laughs> the, the entire you, episode. You, well, <laughs> <laughs> you had commented on it being uh, a, a rough recording, and I took issue with. Um, but I I find that there is a lot of muddiness on this album that on, on on animals that I don't know if I ever noticed before. I mean, really listening to this over the past couple of days, uh, I mean, I, I obviously love the album uh, regardless, but there is a lot of muddiness in the drums and the bass. And at one point, Nick Mason is doing a lot of uh, things on the toms and we're just not feeling the toms. It, just, it sounds like a, a couple generations or it just, you know, they're at different mikings. I'm wondering if you guys think this was a cognizant decision to sort of scale back or because uh, yeah, maybe with it being a darker subject matter, um, maybe they were trying to just, you know, scale back some of the production in a certain way or or not because I, I mean there's a lot of songs i can't even differentiate i'm so uh, glad like, you said this tom yeah like i mean joe mentioned I, I have a hard time differentiating that the bass from from the drums and and uh, you know i have two separate sets of speakers here so i'm going back and forth and i'm and so i'm wondering do you guys think that this was thought it uh, was a cognizant decision to do it or it was you know, just one of those things that they overlooked. I assume Britannia Row was just kind of thrown together the best that they could. You're not going to get that Abbey Road, you know, uh, assortment of pristine spaces in which to record. And you're going to, uh, you know, I mean, let's say they are also influenced by the punk era. They just, you know, oh, it sounds good. Right. It sounds ballsy. It sounds mean. Just get it in there. We're not going to re-record it for Christine. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but but it's weird though because I mean I could I, I can't see them saying this during Dark Side. Like I'm I don't know. It's it's I know it's yeah. a different album, but 
um, once you sort of have a, a certain mind frame about how you're recording, even if it's a, a different album, uh, you don't like let things go, especially when you're now a bigger band. I, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say maybe they really wanted to have a scaled back album. I seem to remember on another interview uh, that I saw on YouTube, I'll see if I can find it, that Gilmore mentioned something that, you know, they, they did they didn't have any saxophone. They didn't put any, you know, female uh, vocalists on it. You know, they, they really trimmed down the sound. And I, I, I think I said minimalist at the, at the opening. Like, I think, I feel like when you compare it to the other albums thus far, it, it feels very minimal. And so I, I feel like that was a conscious choice that they made. Um, given maybe just given the subject matter or the or the the darkerness of of the feature however um i've thought similar things about this mix tom and in particular that the delicious acoustic guitar that i've i've known my whole life that i love i think when you really listen to that guitar fundamentally it's not really like no one would record a guitar like that now i think there is a lot of low mid range in that guitar that muddies up the whole the whole guitar track and probably gets in the way of everything else i mean it it, it you know it, it's almost like the fundamental thing you learn about right uh about recording is like high pass filter right do that so you get rid of all that nonsense that you don't need i don't think they did that in this mm. case and and yeah. i'm torn because i love the way the guitar sounds it's like because because you literally feel like Gilmore sitting right across the room playing it, you know, right in front of you. Um, but I think it does kind of muddy, muddy things up a little bit. So it's kind of interesting how, how it is. I, th I think it might be a little bit of both, like kind of what Ken's saying. They, they were in a new studio. They were, you know, they were, they were getting the sense of the, of the room and, and what they were doing. And at the same time, they wanted to do something dark and, and minimal. And probably each player got to evaluate their own sound. Mm. instead of a producer looking at it as an album. I mean, you know, if everybody's a little bit ballsy, you put it all together and it's too much balls. Right. Too much right. balls. Kind of like sometimes how the palaver is. Too much balls. <laughs> <laughs> I, all right, fair enough. I, I thought maybe Roger Waters was getting on his kick and maybe he was, you know, was not just being the head songwriter and the, the visionary, but maybe he started oh, getting yeah. married. But in the book, they said that he was listening to the Plastic Ono Band, which wow. had little reverb. I don't know. Do you? I mean, do you guys feel that this is lacking in uh, ambience and reverb? I I I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't know if it's lacking it, but it definitely has less I than. But I, I, yeah. I do, I yeah. do think that was the feel they were going for, right? Sort of like one, like that. The lack of reverb in dogs creates, uh, I almost like a lonely feeling when you, you know, when you listen to these Gilmore singing about, you know, um, you know, gotta be ready to pick up the easy meat with your eyes closed, like that. <laughs> He could that, almost that. be in his cubicle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so one other observation that I made about this particular song, and I I don't know if it's just me making shit up or not. I recall 
back in 1990 when Roger Waters was was preparing to stage the wall live in Berlin and he had um, picked his his guitarists and I want to say one of them was one of the guys from the A's from Philadelphia and and I think Snowy was the other one and there was I remember vividly, and I have no idea why I remember it, but there was an interview with, with one of them. I think it was the guy from, from Philly. And the question was if he was going to play the Gilmore solos, um, you know, as David did on the record. And the response was that for the most part, he was going to do that because in his estimation, Gilmore's solos on the songs in the wall were so melodic and had become such a part of the song themselves that changing them would amount to, you know, some sort of desecration. And I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, and and one of the things that struck me, so, and, and we've talked about this before, there's, there's a certain characteristic of David when he's soloing. In the four solos in Dogs, I don't think he ever brings that overly melodic sense. He doesn't ever truly become David in this song. Is that off the mark? Agreed. I, I made that complaint in a few spots in, of all places, like Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I said it was meandering. He wasn't. And, and Paul did bring up the highlights there, but it's such a long song that he meandered. And then you get to this album and there's plenty of room once again for the meandering. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the only thing I can balance that with is that, you know, in all that meandering, you have that dual guitar line yeah. that is about as melodic as you'll ever get of a Pink Floyd song. I mean, you can it, you can walk around all day singing that song, singing that melody. Yeah, but it's it's not it's still I I I I agree, and and I made mention of that in my notes, but I still don't think it's that it's that soaring, expansive sort of Gilmore interpretation that maybe mm -hmm. we're used to. Quick aside, Rick DeFonzo. Rick DeFonzo, yes, thank you. Played in the A's and became a session musician for Roger Waters, as well as Bob Dylan, Cyndi Lauper, and Joan Osborne. There you go. I actually have, um, I believe, my brother's copy. The A's had an EP called Four Dances. Huh. And I've got that on vinyl. It's spectacular. Guys, we've been going for probably about 90 minutes now uh, after I take out the, the pre-show stuff. So, I, you know, much like we did with, um, with Darkseid, perhaps this is a, a good place to, to stop for right now. And we are at the end of side one. And we can reconvene next week, flip the vinyl over and and cover side two because and i'm a little surprised i honestly didn't think there would be this much talk about this album but you know apparently this you know we all have strong feelings about this so if you guys are okay we can we can make this a a, a two-week episode perhaps our feelings are meandering <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we had if we had a more uh, 
a more draconian editor, maybe we could we could still whittle this down into an hour episode. But uh, you know, I like to I like to put as much of us out there as possible. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's uh, let's put a pin in this because it is kind of late, and some of us do have jobs. And then we'll come back um, next week. And we'll do side two of animals, so that will be very, very cool. And as always, appreciate your gentleman's time. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, to covering the rest of this because I think there's there's a lot of stuff here that uh, certainly in in side two that I, I think is very, very interesting. And breaking it up will give us time to really get into the weeds and dig around and, and see what we find. So that'll be cool. So, uh, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that next time. And that will give us, you know, an, an extra week to contemplate the wall. Now, if the wall's a double disc. I'm thinking it's probably going to be a two-part episode as well, but we'll see. It might be a well, four-part episode. It might be. a four-part. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to talking uh, next week on the rest of this. this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some undetermined point in the future, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So, until next time, thanks for listening. Yes. Quick, Tom, read some Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hot to pocket. <laughs>